Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. This week, this week is Palm Sunday, and this is the beginning of what traditionally Christian folks refer to as Holy Week. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, and I always, I never really understood um, the depth of what was happening on Palm Sunday until I got into some of my study this week. And so, excuse me, we're going to look um, at Palm Sunday, but before we do that, we're going to walk down kind of quickly just for a few minutes uh, the annals of history of Israel and see how we got to this point. <clears throat> and it's going to shed some light and understanding on exactly what we are, um, what we're talking about and uh, the, give us a little bit more depth on <clears throat> on what Palm Sunday is. So last week we kind of mentioned just briefly um, that Israel went, the, the nation of Israel went to Samuel and said, uh, we want a king. We want to, we were looking around all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. And so we want a king. <clears throat> so God tells them it's going to be a bad idea. Samuel relays the information. It's going to be a bad idea. And they don't know what to do. So they are, they are, um, uh, they're insistent on it. They will not let it go. And so God says, okay, you can have what you want. You can have what you want, um, but this is not going to work out well. And so it doesn't. After the first king, who is Saul, he appoints his son, Ishbo, because I can't say all the full, full, all the H's in his full name. <clears throat> um, and then there's war between him and David. And the nation of Israel is divided into two sections. The northern part is Israel, the southern part is Judah. And once David comes back on the scene, he, uh, he reigns over both areas. And then um, uh, his son Solomon reigns over both areas. And then after that, they have their own kings, they kind of do their own thing. And Israel has 19 different kings and Judah has 20 different kings before they wind up in captivity. Okay, so First line in your notes, Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. Assyrians, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A-N-S, Assyrians. Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, by the Babylonians. B-A-B-Y-L-O-N-I-A-N-S, Babylonians. So from that time forward until the, the time of Jesus, they... Israel was never its own independent nation again. It was conquered and ruled. Um, next line of your notes, from that time forward, the area of Israel was again conquered and ruled by many different nations and people groups. Many different nations and people groups. Um, depending on who you read and who you study, there can be as few as five or six, and there can, can be as much as a dozen. So they break them out in different, uh, in different, you know, groupings. But there were several different um, uh, nations, kingdoms, people groups who ruled over what we would look at today as Israel. Now, um, about 63 A.D., which is the next line of your notes, Rome grew into prominence and military strength and conquered the land in 63 B.C. So about 60 years before Christ is born, 
the Roman Empire starts to get really strong. They start to spread out their tent. They're, they're already strong, but they're getting stronger. They're spreading out their tentacles everywhere. They're occupying land. They're taking over territory. And Rome comes into possession of Israel in 63 BC. Okay? So during that time, Israel wants its land back. The Jews want their land back. And so what do they do? Um, they have different leaders that rise to prominence and they say, it's time for God's people to get their land back. They're, this was our promised land a long time ago. We're going to get it back. And so they will run in and siege, take siege to a city, lay hold to a city. And then Rome will be like, hey, what are y'all doing? And come in there and destroy them. And this happened multiple times. But every single time this Jewish kind of rebel army would rise up every single time that they would rise up and seize a city and they would try to say we're going to stake our claim back to our land every single time the Roman army brutally and decisively routed the Jewish insurgents keeping the land of Israel under their control <clears throat> now Rome was especially brutal they were very, very bloody and bloodthirsty when it came to um, their, their opponents and opposition in war. And if you, and their, um, their goal was not justice. Their goal was not to do the right thing. Their goal was to keep the peace. And when I say peace, I mean everybody calm down. We're here and y'all going to live with it. And if there was anybody who rose up, they put them down really quick. You got a warning, you got flogged, and if you're going to still cause chaos, we're going to put you to death because in their mind, one person's life to keep everybody else calm was worth it. They were not worried about justice. They were worried about keeping the peace. So they were especially brutal when people would rise up against them. <clears throat> so I was able to find an, a historian named Josephus who gives a lot of um, insight for, for Christian folks during to the time of Jesus that, that he lived. He explained what Rome did to the Jewish rebels um, after uh, 70, in 70 AD, about 35 years after Jesus died. Now this is after Jesus' death, so keep that in mind, but this is an example of how they treated these Jewish rebels, okay? And he gets pretty graphic in his description here. So, <clears throat> I put these in your notes as well so you can follow along. But it... Um, so an example of the, of the Roman brutality, the historian Josephus made this historical record a few years after Jesus died. The account of the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus describes the situation at the beginning of the siege of the temple in 70 AD. This is Jerusalem they're talking about. There was constant noise, the sound of rebel zealots fighting each other together with the sound of weeping and mourning over the dead. Eventually, the stench of death covered the city, and the misery of starvation changed the sound of the city. It was complete quiet. In his book called Of the War, this is an excerpt of what he says. The upper rooms, as he's talking about Jerusalem, the upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine, and the lanes or the roads of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the, uh, with the famine, 
and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. As for burying them, those that were sick themselves were not able to do it, and those who were hardy and well were deterred from doing it by the great multitude of those dead bodies. A deep silence also, and a kind of deadly night seized upon the city. What he's describing here is the city of Jerusalem when the insurgents came in and captured the city and Rome says, you're going to cause problems. We're going to be especially brutal to you again. And they cut off all the supply lines. They cut off all the, the, the ways to go get food. And they were, they were saying, look, y'all are just a few. Y'all are unorganized. We are this mighty army. We're going to sit out here. We're going to starve you out. We're going to smoke you out. We're going to um, wait you out until the point where you have nothing left, and we will walk in easily and wipe you off the map because you dared raise your hand, your fist, as an insurrection against Rome. So now the Roman army has cut off all their supply lines, and they start to take it one step further because everybody in the city is trapped and now they're trying to get out. <clears throat> so let's keep going with Josephus' account of what happened. So according to Josephus, Jerusalem was a stately, beautiful city surrounded by richly wooded hills. During the siege, all of the timber was completely cut down on the hills for 15 kilometers. That's more than nine miles. To use in constructing a bulwarks, battering rams, and for crucifying people. Listen to this. Anyone caught escaping the city, whether man, woman, or child, was crucified atop a great siege bank built up around the city. At one point, as many as 500 people a day were being caught trying to escape and were crucified opposite the city walls. Inside the city, there was death from starvation and murder. Outside the walls surrounding the city, there were literally thousands of crucifixions beyond that barren hills whose trees had been cut down. <clears throat> so imagine for a moment <clears throat> that you're standing in this re on, the, on the roof of this really tall building in Jerusalem, this really well-built, real uh, sorry, well-built, I'm good at talking, a well-built city, all this architecture, all this wood, all this design, and you're looking out over the city, and you're saying, man, there's such a beautiful city, such a well-put-together, well-designed uh, well place, and they have this wall, the fortresses around it, and then outside this, the, the walls, you see these rolling hills and these green trees and this lush shrubbery, and you see all of this stuff out there, and you're thinking, man, what a beautiful place. And then after the sea, you stand in the exact same place. You look out over a city that's burning and has a stench of death. And it, it's got this dark heaviness that's descended upon the town and the people there in their starvation and dead bodies laying all over the place. And then you look out to where those nice, beautiful, lush, green trees and rolling hills used to be. And all you see is every single tree cut down for nine miles. Think here to Camelback Mountain almost. As far as you can kind of see in this one direction, 
all of its cut down, all of its chopped down, and most of that wood was used to knock in the gates of the city, and the rest of it was used to crucify men, women, and children who were part of the insurrection. Thousands of bodies hanging on makeshift crosses. Animals, wild beasts, birds, bugs, insects, literally eating the flesh and the, the dead bodies of those who were hung on these crosses that are dead from crucifixion, blood running everywhere on the ground, and that is the sight you see when you look out the city now. This happened, yes, after Jesus had died, but this was an example of how Rome dealt with people who were insurgents. And so when you had, before the time of Jesus, all of these Israelite, these Jewish people rising up to take their city back, and they were dealt with in similar ways, with a similar bloodthirsty, harsh, we don't care how old or young you are, you're part of the insurgency, you're part of the family of the insurgents, we are going to butcher you and slaughter you and put your bodies on display so everybody knows, I'll never do that again. With that in mind, in that context, we'll fill in the next line of your notes. The Jews hated the Romans. Sometimes we'll use that word hate kind of flippantly in our culture. Like, I hate the seafood buffet over in Metro Mall. It's nasty. I've been there and understand what I'm saying. <clears throat> um, I hate that. I hate it when the car won't start in the morning and I got to wait a few minutes for it to warm up. Flippantly, we use the word hate. So I wanted to make sure you understood that when we say the Jews hated the Romans, it's like, oh, I hate those guys. No, they hated them. They despised them. There were generations of Israelites and Jews that had been murdered and put to death that will never exist again because of the Roman brutality, the Roman revenge on the insurgents. They hated them. Rome took slaves of the ones who survived and spread them all across, literally all to every end of Europe that they, that they occupied and conquered, and we begin to sell them in, uh, into slavery. The Jews hated the Romans. So when the Jews would read the prophecies about a savior, about a conqueror, about a redeemer, about someone who was more powerful than anything else, that God had ordained them to come, when you told those guys about a savior, they weren't thinking about a heavenly kingdom. They were thinking, I have been under the boot of these stinking Romans for so long, and that one of these guys that rises up is going to be the right one, and they are going to deliver us. My deliverer is coming. They're going to deliver us from this brutal oppression from this occupied land and they are going to know what it's like to be on the bottom because they're going to put us on the top 
We are waiting so that we can, when our real king comes, he comes and he establishes this nation of Israel that everybody else is going to have to bow down to. And then all of us who've been getting spit at and dirt kicked in our face, we're going to be the ones who are dishing it out. And they're expecting a king, a savior to come and fill that role. Next line in your notes, although these pictures recorded through the lens of history are horrific, Jesus came to fulfill and set into motion a larger plan. Wasn't interested in ruling some temporary nation. He came to bring salvation to everyone and set up his eternal kingdom. Jesus tried to prepare people for this. Every single time that he would teach during his ministry, every time that he would give some instruction, every time that he would give a different perspective, he was trying to tell them there's something bigger going on here, but y'all ain't seeing it. Every single time he dealt with someone and he had to correct them. It doesn't matter if it was a Pharisee or one of his followers or a disciple. didn't matter. He's telling them, y'all are thinking this way. I'm talking this way. And you're missing what I'm trying to do here. Before we get on our high horse, we probably would have missed it too. We have the luxury and the privilege of looking back on these accounts and seeing how it unfolded to see what Jesus was doing. But in the moment, they didn't understand. They thought he came to do something else. They were ready for it. Let me give you quickly four examples of how Jesus was talking differently and they understood, they, they, he was talking differently than how everyone was understanding what he was saying. I've got four passages of scripture I'm going to have Christian read for us that are on these, that are on these next points here. And uh, letter A, the next line in your notes is Jesus calms the storm. He calms the storm. So I'm going to have him read Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 through 27. Tessie, then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly, a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. <clears throat> Jesus responded, Why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man? They even asked. Even the winds and waves obey him. I find it interesting that at the end of this passage, they ask, who is this man? This is not the first miracle that they've seen. This is not Jesus' first recorded miracle. They have seen him rebuke people with wisdom they've never heard before. They've watched him say things they've never heard before. They've watched him heal people with their own eyes. They've watched him feed people. They've watched him do all of these miracles. And here they are following this man, and they are freaking out on the boat. But when they go and they wake him up, he says, where is your faith? And he calms the wind and the waves. And they go back and go, who is this guy? that the wind and waves obey him. Who is this guy? They keep saying, who is this man? 
And Jesus is saying, um, I'm the guy that created all of this. Y'all are impressed that the wind and the waves can be calmed down, but I'm the one who made the wind and the waves. I'm the author, the creator of all of these things. So you are sitting here astounded and your mind is blown because I can do these things right here, but you're only looking right here. I created all this. I'm operating up here. He's telling them, look, you're not seeing what I'm bringing to you. You're still dealing here. I'm dealing up here. Letter B, why does Jesus eat with sinners? <clears throat> why does Jesus eat with sinners? This is another example, Matthew 9, 9 through 12. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as a dinner guest, as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. So here's Matthew, who was a tax collector. And right below the, the chart of people that the Israelites hate, hated, right below the Romans, were the tax collectors. Because typically, Rome, the, the, the Roman Empire, would hire Jewish people to be the tax collectors. After everything that they had done to their people, after all the people they had killed, after the brutality they had shown to the Israelites, they would hire a Jewish person to be a tax collector. And the tax collectors were notoriously dishonest. If Matthew, the tax collector, needed a new camel, he needed 20 pieces of silver, he looked around and said, I don't have 20 pieces of silver, where am I going to get it? It looks like the taxes went up today for the next 20 people by one piece of silver. Somebody would come pay their taxes, three pieces of silver, and goes, hey, bro, taxes are four pieces of silver. Well, they've been three, three pieces of silver for a month. Yeah, they're four pieces today. I don't have four pieces. You better go find it, or I'm going to tell them that you didn't give anything. And they would hate those guys because they would lie to them, and he would wait until he got all the extra pairs of, uh, pieces of silver so he could go get the camel he needed. They were... They were notoriously dishonest. And they, the Jews looked down on them so much because you are working with the people who were killing us? Bro, it's just business. They hated them for it. All of these, Matthew's a disciple, and he says, come to my house to eat. And so who's all the people that Matthew knows? A bunch of other people like him, right? So he brings all these other tax collectors, brings all these disreputable people to his house, and then all the Pharisees, the, the religious people, walk in and go, hey, man, why is he eating with them sinners? I don't want to be associated with those dudes. They're thinking down here. Jesus goes, uh, those dudes are the ones who need the help. Those are the sick, and I've got the remedy for them. They're doing this because their soul is bankrupt. I can fill them up to a place where they will not want to do this anymore. They will follow me. They're thinking, I don't want to be seen with them. Jesus is like, I'm here to help everybody. It doesn't matter how dirty or grimy you are. The expectation of Jesus is here, and everybody else is down here. And I'm talking to you in a way that you're not understanding. 
Third example, letter C, being born again, being born again. John chapter 3, 1 through 4. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to, Je- he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Here it is again. Nicodemus saying, You want me to be born again? I can't go back in my mom and then be passed through the birth canal again. What are you talking about? And he's telling him, You're not listening to me. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. You are dead inside. I'm not talking about you somehow finding a way to Benjamin button it, right? Like shrink back down and then go back in and come back out. I'm not talking about that. Y'all are thinking down here. I'm thinking up here. There is a gap between what they're expecting and wanting, but what Jesus came to do. Last example, letter D, living water, living water. John chapter four, excuse me, verses seven through 15. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused, for Jews refused to do anything with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking, for me, why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come to get watered. Here he is telling them, I will give you eternal life. And she's saying, Can you help me not have to walk out here with these empty jars, draw the water out, put it in these jars, and carry it back? She's worried about her physical thirst being quenched so she doesn't have to participate in the manual labor of walking out there to bring water home every single day. And he's saying you're not getting it. I'm talking about your spirit, your soul, never thirsting again. What I'm talking about is eternal life. You're talking about how can I save myself some energy in my temporary life? Every single one of these, there's, there's a ton of these throughout the Gospels in the New Testament where Jesus is talking about something. He is saying, I am here to do this, and the expectation is down here. I am here to do an eternal work, a work that will, that will impact forever, and all the people are down here looking for, fix this thing that I got right now. There is a gap between what Jesus is telling them 
and what they understand. They want him to fix the physical problem, and he's dealing with a spiritually eternal problem. He does this in almost every interaction. When he heals someone, people say, they, when he heals one of the blind men, the Pharisees say, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, no one sinned. This man is in this condition down here so that God can get the glory and shine his light to all the people who don't understand who I am. We're operating down here. He's operating up here. Do you see the difference? So now with that in mind, now let's get to Palm Sunday. The word about Jesus has spread. The word about his healing, these, these miracles has happened, has spread throughout all of, all of the surrounding areas. The Jewish people are beginning to get excited. They hear about how God sent this man, how, how he is doing all of these crazy, uh, uh, the crazy uh, powerful signs and wonders. He is, he is operating from a a position of wisdom that they have never understood. He's saying things and correcting people in ways they have never been corrected. He's dealing harshly with the religious people who have burdened the Jewish people for so long with these rules and these regulations, these things they have to do. And he is calling them out, correcting them one after another. And Jesus puts out the word, the next place I'm going is Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. I'm coming home. What do the people do? They get word that he's coming to Jerusalem, and they respond. We're going to read this in two different passages, a longer one in Matthew than a short one in John, and I want to draw your attention to what happens here. Okay, so Matthew 21, 1 through 11. I'm going to have Christian read it for us. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to a town... They came to the town of Bethphage on Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there it's with its coat beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's coat. The two disciples, the two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They bought the donkey and the coat to him and threw their garments over the coat. And he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of them, and other and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the, pro, uh, the procession and the people all around him were shouting praise God for the son of David blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord praise God in highest heaven the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered who is this they asked and the crowds replied it is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee so not only has he done all these miracles not only has he fed all these people with very little food? Not only does he have this profound wisdom, not only is he operating in a power they've never seen, he is now fulfilling prophecy by riding into the city 
on that donkey and having its colt there. And these people begin to get excited. Now what you may not understand is that this, that this procession, this parade, this celebration that people give, that are, that are giving to Jesus at this point is not an uncommon thing. When people returned from war and they were victorious, people would cut down palm branches and they would lay their coats uh, over the entrance of the city as a welcoming, as a celebrating that the victory that the, the victorious army and the leader of the army had come home and they are the champions. They had done this before. They had seen this before. And so the people cut down the palm trees, the branches. They cut these down and they begin to wave these things and say all of these accolades towards Jesus. Praise God, the son of David, blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they begin to shout all these things as he is coming in. And then in John, who records this same thing, the people, he records the people saying something very interesting and it will shed some light on what they were expecting. John 12 12 through 13. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, Praise God, blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Hail to the King of Israel. Hail to the King of Israel. Of Israel with all their history with Jesus fulfilling prophecy with all of the stories that have gone around about him what are these people expecting Jesus to do when he rolls into Jerusalem he's a, they're expecting him to kick butts and take names line them up one by one it doesn't matter who it is, all the Roman army, all the leaders. It doesn't matter if you bring Caesar down himself. It doesn't matter because our king, our deliverer is here and he is about to lay it down. And we are all here for it. And he's the champion. And this time of oppression is over. And this is about to go in a whole different way. Y'all just wait till we get to be on top. Y'all wait till we get promoted. Y'all wait till we sit in the positions of power. We wait till all the stuff that you've been doing to us. Yeah, I remember you, bro. Yeah, I remember what you've been saying. I remember all this stuff. Wait till we are put in the position of leadership with our king, and then you're going to get a taste of it because our deliverer has shown up. Now what happened? I always wondered how on Sunday these people could be cheering and shouting and calling him the king of Israel and waving palm branches. And then when he's arrested on Thursday, not be anywhere to be found. I used to wonder that a lot and it hit me while I was studying this week. They realized he wasn't going to establish a throne. He wasn't going to establish them as rulers. And so they've been out there thinking that this was the guy. And then they realize, oh, he's been beaten and flogged and he's got a crown of thorns on his head and they're about to crucify him. Not our guy. And because Jesus 
didn't do what they wanted him to do or expected him to do, they disappeared. Hail to the king of Israel. He's not going to establish a throne here on earth and kick the tails of all the Romans. All right. I mean, after they started asking, right? After he'd been arrested? Oh, you were with him? Remember Peter denied him three times? They all rolled into town thinking, this is it. Now, he doesn't do things the way I want him, and so all my disappointments start to rise. My faith starts to fade. This is the background of Palm Sunday. never understood that that's what they were waiting for and the disappointment that had to come in the next couple of days because they wanted physical king physical throne and a physical temple to reign over physical people establish power over a physical world and God said you may be asking for this I've got something else that's far greater. Three observations I want to make towards the end of our time here together tonight. Number one in your notes. First observation. Mankind wants immediate relief from pain. but God is carrying out his eternal plan. Mankind wants immediate relief from pain, but God is carrying out his eternal plan. After every one of these observations, I put a reflection question in there for you not to answer out loud, but just to consider in your heart today and maybe in the days to come. Are we content or will we remain content if God takes longer, a longer period of time to answer our prayer or answers it in a different way than the expectation we created in our mind. Will we remain content and faithful to him when he operates in a way that we don't like or he, he doesn't answer the prayer or delays answering the prayer or when he does answer it, it looks nothing like what we had pictured in our mind. Man, when God comes, when Jesus steps in here, when he goes through this situation, when he shines light on this problem, when he addresses this need, this is what it's going to look like almost every single time. Almost every single time, that's not it. And we see this starting with his own nation, his own people. 2 Corinthians 4.16, it's not in your notes, but it's one that I thought of in relation to this. This is Paul talking to the church in Corinth. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He's telling us, y'all are looking right here. But I'm operating up here. Matt, why does God heal some people that we pray for and he doesn't heal other people? We're looking right here. He's looking up here. I asked that question this week. I walked into a home just south of Las Vegas, visited a family who's 38-year-old daughter passed away from breast cancer. Married, eight children, eight children, ranging from the age of 17 to 18 months. I sat there as the mom broke down and wept at the dinner table and her sisters tried to keep it together because she passed away on one of her children's birthday. Felt that one. They wanted to still throw the party because they didn't want this only memory of this child on their 16th birthday to think it was the day my mom passed away. They wanted to do something for her, so I watched a family rally around. They prayed, they worshiped, they begged God to heal that girl, and he chose not to. Sit in this very room and can tell you the story of people who prayed their guts out for someone and God healed them. I just don't get it, Matt. I just don't understand why he would heal in this scenario and not in that scenario. And if I compared the two, this one, man, is crazy, and this one was bad, but this one's even worse. And, oh, my goodness, why in the world would he act in this way and not in this way? It's because if we're believers in Jesus, we have to trust that he's operating up here and we're operating down here. And though this looks tragic at the moment, there is something that he is going to do in the middle of this to shine his light of glory, to show himself strong it could be to building every one of those children it could be from the family rallying around and showing the love of that mother throughout the rest of their life it doesn't matter and we don't understand what it is right now what I wanted him to do was show up and answer that prayer what we asked him to do was come here what Israel asked him to do was come be this uh, come be the, sa the the savior of the of the of Israel and set up their kingdom but he was saying your thoughts and your ways are different than how I'm thinking. Y'all are concerned right here. I'm dealing with it up here. And that is the point where our faith has to be in the fact that we know how this ends. Israel, the Israelites had no idea that he was going to raise from the dead. There was a handful of them. The disciples knew he had told them, but they're still holding their breath. Is this really going to happen? But in the midst of coming to the point of Jesus' death and resurrection, there is a disappointment that happens on that way, on the way, at some point in life. And we're going to have to choose at that moment, are we going to ride it out with him, or you didn't do what I want, so I'm going to fade back into the background. He may not operate how you want him to walk. He may not operate how you, how you want him to operate. He didn't for me. And if you figure out the recipe for that, let me know. 
But the longer I live and the more people I talk to, almost every single person who is a believer will tell you a story. God did not operate how I wanted to, but at the end, I see why he did it. He didn't answer my immediate prayer. He didn't fix the sickness right away. He didn't, he didn't make all this stuff right. But there is something much bigger going on. Second observation, number two in your notes, mankind tends to be concerned with our earthly life. God is concerned with our eternal life. Does that mean he don't care about what happens here on earth? Not at all. That mean he doesn't care if I'm struggling or need a job? Nope. Doesn't mean that at all. Does he care? Absolutely. Does he want to give you life and life more abundantly? Yes. But when we think life and life more abundantly, we might think bigger house, a little bit easier lifestyle, a little bit more comfort, a lot more money. My bank account gets bigger. I got the job I always wanted. I'm driving the car I always wanted. My family's in the, in the lane I always want them to be in, and I never have a problem. But what if life and life more abundantly doesn't translate out to what we think it's going to be? It actually translates out to, even though it was hard, you maintained your faith, you grew deeper roots in him. You didn't, you didn't grow in spite of the pain. You actually grew through it. It's not because he relieved the obstacle. He used that to make you stronger, and he's operating on a different level. Are you still going to ride with him? doesn't do things how we want him to be. Reflection question. Do we want to leave a legacy of how important and successful we are? Or do we want to leave an eternal imprint on those we meet, reminding them of Jesus? I want to leave a legacy. I want to be that guy. I want people to remember me. Okay, cool. Well, they, when they talk about you after you're gone, will they say, that dude gave his whole life to Jesus. That lady, she was all in with Christ. That lady prayed and worshiped like nobody I have ever met in my life. I, I'm going to use that as an example to get close to God. I want to worship like that. That dude stood uncompromising in the face of cultural um, headwinds. That dude stood there for Jesus, and I don't know how he made it because I know what his life was like. I know God is real because of what he did in that guy's life. Are we concerned with standing here and be like, remember the name? Or are we living a life to say, remember the only name, the name above all names, not mine. Hope you forget me, but I hope you never forget what I pointed you to. Observation number three. Mankind wants our lives to be remembered by men. God wants our life to be used so others will remember him. Mankind wants our lives to be remembered by men. God wants our life to be used so others will remember him. So this is a little bit of an invasive reflection question, okay? Just let you know before I read it off to you. Evaluate your life now. Would the people around you remember you as someone who lived for Christ? Do the people that you see every day at work, would they go, that dude 
we disagreed on a lot of things, but that dude went all the way to the wire. He believed in the gospel. He believed in Jesus. He believed in scripture. He believed in the Bible. And he went and gave his life for that. Would they remember you like that? Long before these questions are asked to you, they're asked to me. I had to sit this week and ask myself, the people at my corporate America job, would they say that about me? And I thought, well, of course. And I listed off a couple of people and realized that I've had some really intense gospel-centered conversations with. And realized that almost all of them are no longer with the company. And I'm on a new team. And I had to sit for a second and go, man, I've been thinking I did a good job, but these new people I'm around, have I been as open? honest, transparent about the gospel with them as I was people who are no longer here. If you give an honest assessment of yourself, don't beat yourself up. Don't go down the road of, I'm just terrible, so no. No, just give an honest evaluation of yourself. People around you, do they know that you ride with Jesus no matter what? that your life is for him and all the money that you're making at your job or whatever else is used to take care of your family, to bless other people, to be generous and point people to him and live in that way? Do they know that about you? We need to celebrate the fact that Jesus came to establish his kingdom. We need to celebrate the fact of who he is. We need to celebrate the fact that he is the king. He is the alpha and omega, beginning and the end, the first and the last. We need to celebrate the fact that he's all-powerful. And, and in Luke's account of, of the triumphal entry, which is, this is referred to in Christian circles, they, in Luke's account of, this, of, this, um, of, of what happened here, the Pharisees look at Jesus and say, Hey, man, correct your followers. Don't let them call you the son of God and say how great you are. And he said, if they don't do it, the rocks will cry out. That's in related to Palm Sunday. So we need to have his praise ever be on my lips. We need to say that I'm caught up in his presence. We need to say that I'm going to sit here at his feet. We need to acknowledge just how great he is and the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. We need to make sure we do that. But we also need to make sure that we do not waver like the people who cheered on Sunday and could not be found on Friday. God is not going to operate in the manner or way that you think he's going to operate. Why? Because he sees things from a perspective that we don't see. And if you are in the middle of a scenario that you don't get, that is causing you some strife, that you don't understand, that is producing confusion, you have prayed for something forever and you're wondering when it's going to happen, it's starting to happen, but it might not be shaping up how you thought it needed to, how you prayed that God would answer that prayer for you. It may not be going at 
the, at the pace you want it to go, I'm telling you now, if you are in that scenario, I want to remind you the words of the prophet Isaiah in, in chapter 55 of Isaiah, verse 8 and 9. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. This is not his way of a mic drop moment to walk in and be like, look, I'm the creator. You're the creation. Just sit down and let me do what I'm going to do. No, a loving father doesn't do that. He walks in and says, hey, I'm doing something that you can't see. I'm operating in a way that you don't understand right now at the moment, but I need your faith, your trust to remain in me as I go out here and do this work on your behalf. It may not be fun for you. It may not feel good for you, but there is some way that I'm going to shine light in the middle of this scenario so that he gets glory. And when he's lifted up, he draws all men unto him. And that's what happens this week. That's what happens this week. It is not just a bunch of people who are celebrating and then got all emotional and Pentecostal and then got laid out. And then on Friday, they just were too hungover, drunk in the spirit to, to go and, and protest the, the crucifixion. Things didn't go the way they expected them to, and they got really quiet. But Jesus, the same thing he's saying to them is the example of what he's communicating to us. I ain't going to do things the way you expect them to be done, y'all are thinking right here. And the highest level you could get might be um, uh, as high as an airplane can go, but I am all the way up at the top of every single universe, and I am seeing everything that you don't. You need to trust me. God must be waiting until Easter. Resurrection day to answer my prayer to resurrect my career, resurrect my relationship. No. Mm -mm. Don't lay your situation on the scripture. Draw from it what it says. He's telling us through his word, how he dealt with the people, his words directly to his disciples, to his followers, to sinners, to Samaritans, who the Jews didn't like either. When he dealt with Romans, it didn't matter. He came to open the door for everyone. That meant disappointing the expectations that were unrealistic of the Israelite people so that he could open the door for everyone to be saved then he will disappoint those because he's got a greater work to be done. Are there consequences for your actions? Absolutely. Some of the things that we struggle with, self-inflicted, uh, self sure. Will God rescue from them? Yep. But he might just come, he might not just come and pluck you out of the middle of the situation, calm it all down and be like, here, it doesn't even, there's not even any dirt on you, not even the dust. It's just, you're clean. You're clean in his eyes. But the struggle of getting back out, struggle that may come after the grace, you have no idea how he's using it in the light of other people. We don't think like him. We don't act like him. We don't operate like him.
but what he's doing is far greater than anything we can imagine. I would ask every parent in here, would you walk with a limp the rest of your life? Do your children would be saved? Every one of you without hesitation would say, absolutely, right now. Done. Would you deal with hardship if you knew that these nine people would see how you dealt with the hardship and say, I don't live like that. I don't endure like that. I'm going to follow the same God this guy followed. The thing about faith is it's a front-end ingredient, and you don't get to see the back-end yet. Just remain faithful right now, even when it looks like he's not doing what I want him to do. The message this week, this happens to me often. The message this week was not like, Palm Sunday, yes, Jesus is coming. Like, that's what I wanted it to be, right? Like, yay. The reality of life is, a lot of people disappointed that Jesus didn't do what he, they wanted him to do or thought he would do. They didn't step in when I wanted him to step in. That moment, we got to remember the disappointment of the Jewish people compared to the resurrection of our Savior. I heard somebody say before I walked in here today, a lot can happen in seven days. Celebration, arrest, beating, crucifixion, death, burial, and coming back to life. Taking forever, Matt. Hmm? I've been praying for this forever, believing for it forever. I get it. I refuse to look at an all-powerful, all-creative, all-encompassing, all-knowing God and say, because you didn't do the thing that I wanted, the way I wanted it done in my little bitty circle of what I can comprehend, I'm not rolling with you no more, no, because I have the advantage of knowing that at the end, there's a resurrection waiting. There's a resurrection waiting.